Hello, uh, my name is Javilla. I am co-founder of Less Stress Project and a podcast. Here at Less Stress, we talk uh, and study traumas, embodiment, uh, body practices, neuroscience, yoga and art. And we're exploring links and dialogues between the disciplines and professions so we can help together to connect our human system holistically. So I'm very happy to finally uh, tell that we have our social media, uh, so both Facebook and Instagram, so you can follow us and see what are we having there. Uh, so it's less stress art on Instagram and less stress on Facebook. So today I'm super, like super excited to have Rebecca Pear. And she is an old friend of mine. And at the same time, she is an amazing woman <laughs> because she's the founder of a social enterprise named Gym Therapy and is a practicing social worker working as a part of a safeguarding team for a local authority in London. She's also a music graduate, dancer and a linguist. Rebecca is passionate about using a variety of artistic disciplines to approach social emotional issues from a creative angle. Rebecca has worked as a choreographer, musician and educator in the UK, Canada, Spain and Chile. So welcome. That's a, it's a very glittering <laughs> introduction. Thank you so much. I would say mirror all of that back to you and I'm just so continually inspired by your work. So yeah, very kind. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm absolutely assured that um, this is a very, very amazing and correct <laughs> introduction of yours. Um, so yeah, let's let's start. Maybe if you allow me, I, I would like to start on your book. So Gym Therapy, you wrote, if I'm correct, around three years ago. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. And what do you think there are those underlying factors that inspire you to write it? Was it uh, based on your own experience or was it a mixture of um, really feeling passionate about such topics of trauma and uh, difficult social upbringings of kids and of course dance and movement? It's, it's a really good question. So I'd say it was a mix of the personal and professional. So I'll, I'll start with the professional. So I was working as a social worker with children who had undergone a lot of trauma lots of them were in the care system or they had ADHD or autism and I realized that they didn't have a positive way to express that or to be creative or to be themselves and at school um, I know that you've studied in the UK you know just how rigid the system is you know children are expected to sit still and not move the whole day and I just thought um, these children need to breathe they need to live and dance and move and and get some of this, um, you know, these painful emotions out of their system. So I set up a program designed to do that named Gym Therapy. Um, but then in on a personal level, I had quite um, a challenging upbringing myself in many ways. So I have um, a parent with a mental illness and witnessed a lot of domestic abuse. Um, but my grandmother, she worked three jobs to kind of put me through ballet school and um, you know, 
give me access to kind of dance lessons. And for me, dancing was always a saving grace growing up. It was a safe space. So I really wanted to bring all of that mixture of the personal and professional into the book. Yeah, wow. This is, uh, this is absolutely amazing. And could you tell, um, maybe could you tell about the process of writing it? And uh, if to dig deeper a little bit, how did you uh, manage to construct and gather those practical tools um, to give, you know, to kids, um, because it's quite a demanding uh, audience, I would say. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I know it sounds cliche, but I think my biggest teacher was the children themselves. So I went in with some ideas. I'd done some research into dance therapy um, and into counseling and I'd, I'd come up with some tools and developed them but actually then taking some of the tools into schools with real young people they would undertake the activities but they'd come up with their own ideas or their own creative spins on them or um, they'd kind of embellish them so I would say my main teacher was actually the children who helped me to grow the tools and then in terms of writing the work um, that took place over eight months and it was really a labour of love, I would say. It was many, many, many hours spent in my attic thinking, reflecting on the feedback the children had given me and, and carving out space to do that. So, mm. yeah, lo lots of time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I would say, well, if I dare to say, but um, I feel that children have that capability to be sincere and uh, share how they really feel um, in terms of you know practices and stuff so i wonder uh did you uh did you manage to um how did you manage to deal with uh, more difficult behaviors and children how was that for you and how did you integrate that difficulty that hardness into your into your writing, yeah. Oh, wow, that's a really good question. I think going back to your first point about children being sincere, I, I completely agree. You know, if you get a, a room full of 10 children and ask them to dance around like an animal or like a balloon or anything, that they just go with it and they have a freedom in, in their heart, whereas in, as adults, we've lost that innocence and we're very self-conscious. Um, in terms of the difficult behaviors, I think I really just tried to, rather than being a teacher or putting in lots of, of strict boundaries, I'd say there were only two rules. So one was to respect others and the second rule was to have fun. And so I think creating a space where it was okay to be loud and it was okay to run around and stamp your feet and it was okay to show your anger in a healthy way. Um, kind of alleviated those concerns, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I wonder, did you uh, come across any people or practitioners um, of similar sorts uh, or maybe different sorts, some, something like more uh, of a mental therapy? Um, how did you come across, you know, them being a bit 
um, I don't know, skeptical about this kind of therapy or anything like that, I wonder? I think it was, I was very fortunate from the beginning to work with therapists or, or counsellors who really believed in the project and believed in what I was doing and they lived in the same community. So, I, yeah, I worked with um, a person-centred counsellor and she had used in her work, you know, creative arts and movements, but it had never been given the same name and so she, she endorsed the work. I also worked with a clinical psychologist who had worked with many children with autism who just didn't um, respond very well to sitting down and talking. And so she knew that actually bringing something as dynamic in as movement into the equation would be really positive. So luckily I haven't met too many skeptics until this point, but I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, that's, that's so good to hear. And I think also UK, um, is quite a fortunate place for for those practices because even it has quite much older roots in, for example, dance and movement psychotherapy than uh, I don't know here in in in, in Lithuania. <laughs> um, so I think it's quite quite a good place for that, and it's it's really amazing to hear that it got good good responses. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be really interested to hear actually. Um, yeah, how how the situation is in, in the Lithuanian to get that international perspective, because I feel like I have been in a real bubble in the UK. I think it's for sure a bit delayed, because um, now only around two years ago, they finally established a university course called Dance and Movement Psychotherapy. Um, yeah, because I remember um, when I finished my bachelor in UK, I was already looking to do the master's um, at the Roehampton University, the dance and movement psychotherapy. Uh, but then I just kind of I thought it just needed some some time doing uh, more of the <laughs> stage stuff. So yeah, they they only established this course uh, now, and um, there are practices of for sure like art therapy and uh, a bit of movement therapy and, and somatics but it's still not that I would say not that widely practiced and appreciated but I think it's slowly uh, taking appreciated more and more. That's, that's good and I'm sure that you know with you being there that you can be a beacon of light and maybe yeah be the one Aww. to make strides. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm still in my process of my uh, somatic study, so, but it's absolutely amazing. Wow. So um, just to come back a little bit, uh, you mentioned you worked a lot with uh, um, children with ADHD and autism. What were the complex or issues uh, dealing with the kids with special needs? So I think it, it depended on each individual child, but I'd say some of the main ones were um, a short, shorter attention span. So children would be, you know, very intensely engaged in an activity for maybe two or three minutes um, but they they then would need to move on very quickly to something else. So I think one of the main challenges was I always had to have what felt like 
100 spare activities in case children needed to move on. Um, another one was, yeah, was probably complex trauma. Um, if children hadn't had a nurturing, supportive adult in their lives, um, sometimes they could maybe project some of their fears or uncertainties on onto me as a teacher. So I just had to be very gentle um, and consult with the teachers or parents who already knew how they worked. Um, I'd say another one was perhaps just lack of opportunity. So I'd worked with lots of children who had never had a dance lesson in their life or they'd never been encouraged to be creative. So sometimes it might have been a bit overwhelming suddenly saying, okay, be as creative as you want and dance and move around the room. And some of them maybe lacked confidence, but over the eight weeks um, program, you could really see um, gradually they became more confident in themselves and they made friends and they saw that actually they could achieve things and, and be creative. So um, yeah, that, that changed over time. Mm, that's, that's so good. Uh, so good to hear. And I wonder the tools that you gathered uh, through your research and practice, do you think there are some tools that work more or some tools that work less and maybe you could share some of the those tools that actually seem to be most beneficial in the hands-on practice yeah wow so i think in terms of what might work more in the i'm thinking about the current climate with covid19 so this program was developed you know, a few years before the pandemic. And I'm not sure if at this present time, how that would translate virtually, whether doing this digitally would have the same impact. So there may well be, um, I know that there's some therapies that are a hybrid between, um, you know, practical and virtual. So I'd say that may be um, something that might be more effective at this time. And in terms of the tool that tools that worked the most the first one was um called narrative therapy so i'd ask children to create a timeline of the you know the significant events in their life whether it was uh, moving house starting school bereavement getting a new pet whatever mattered most to them um, and i'd then um encourage them to make a you know a choreography based off that and I think that was really powerful because if children their whole lives have been told to fit into a narrative or they've been told, you know, you are a problem child or you are the cause of X, Y, Z, to give them the chance to reflect on their life and to reframe it positively was was really effective. Um, other tools that really worked were very visual based tools. So giving children, um, you know, ribbons and percussion instruments um, and being able to translate their experiences into visual and sound and music also really helped. Um, and remarkably, something that helped more than anything else was just really simple imaginative play, uh, a mix between meditation and imaginative play. I never imagined that asking children to lie completely still on the floor and imagine they were in, in a jungle worked for example but they, they were the kind of things that children really thrived from um 
So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what, what your views are on that or if any of that was surprising. Yeah, these are, um, well, because I'm, I'm not uh, that uh, experienced at all working with children. <laughs> um, so in, in general, um, but uh, but it sounds it sounds very integrative and involving, and I think that is quite a, an important thing with kids to involve them into action, but also by creating a safe space to be where they can, as you said, to rewrite their narrative in a way, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. That that is that is amazing. I think there's just something so pure and open about children's minds you know they've not yet been polluted with ideas that you have to restrain yourself or behave in public or you know if if you're walking down the street a child will stop 20 times to look at a leaf or look at a bird or spin around and as adults we lose that kind of joy so um yeah I think that you'd be really suitable and and amazing working with children because you still have that kind of free spirit I think oh thank you thank you so much yeah definitely you're right I think kids have still very sharp senses and um somehow their even their time perception is still um very different than the adults because the time kind of don't exist to them. The minute can be, you know, as big as a day for an adult. So for the kid, the minute can be as big as the day for an adult. And I think um, it's actually so nice. Even now I really start coming back to this practice of, um, you know, instead of just working all day and thinking that I have to do all these things. And if I if I take a break or anything like that, you know, I won't be able to do it, but I know actually, and I have to consciously choose uh, that to myself that I need to take a break. I need to go outside and just just really look at the trees and, and, and move around, even if it's for 10 minutes and to see the sunshine. And it's such a big difference <laughs> when you come back to work. So, yeah. You're so right. We're not designed to be nine to five robots. And sadly, even children from being, you know, four or five years old in, in the UK are expected to sit on a seat all day in four walls with very limited breaks. And it's just not the way that we're supposed to be. So tapping into that inner child, I think is really important. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why it happens this, you know, that we are kind of uh, forced to sit, well, not forced, we choose, but of course, but this whole system is very much um, concentrated of, of this brain intellect, right? And and the body and its needs and its um, uh, the intelligence is very much neglected. Um, so I think because the system looks at the human so uh, dis at, from this disintegrated point of view I think um, that's why it's now slowly leading to, to my question but I feel that's why it's such a pandemic of dissociative um, sensation within us um, and you know I don't know I, I'm sure you know but we have uh, probably two one of the two main uh, ways of telling how a person can be dissociated. So 
perhaps he's either too hyperactive or like very frozen, so very stiff in the body. So it's usually kind of um, still stuck in the past trauma or a past experience. So what do you think? Uh, how do we how do we approach this dissociation um, in therapy, perhaps, or even even how do you approach that to yourself or at the same time to others as well? And what is perhaps do you have any? Um, uh, can you relate to this dissociation at all within yourself as well? Wow, yes, uh, 100% on so, so many levels. I'll start with that. So at the moment, I'm in art therapy myself because I realized, you know, if you're leading other people in these practices, you also need to be supported. And um, I've taken on board a lot of secondhand trauma in my old job, and I felt like I was carrying that. So for me, I'm I'm only just really learning the extent of my own dissociation and how, um, you know, the mind compartmentalizes uh, traumatic experiences. And I felt that there's been that kind of split um, in myself. So I think for me, it's almost giving myself the permission to look the past in, in the face and, and acknowledge it and not just try to hide it away but to view it as something that is a part of me um so so that's the first part and I think your other question was about um how to almost unfreeze yourself or or unfreeze the body and I think I'd go back to one of the words you said at the beginning of this um of this podcast was holistic that in your practice you're trying to be holistic and I think that you really need to think and I know that I'm talking to a foodie anyway but about all of the things it's you know dance and movement and therapy is so you know that's so important but that's just one aspect it's also you know are we eating well as you've mentioned nature are we in nature are we um do we have friendship do we have community do we have space to laugh do we have time to feel sad do we have you know physical touch um all of these things and so I, th I don't think that just focusing on any of one of those areas by themselves is enough to almost um thaw or unfreeze ourselves so I'd, I'd just go back to that holistic thinking really um yeah. I know yeah, that you're yeah. someone who finds lots of joy in in um baking in the past I know that I'm going back years now but I think that you'd be able to understand where I'm coming from there yeah, absolutely. <laughs> definitely. And you're, you're, you're definitely right. Um, and I think, but for me, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, then only then I found this um, very embodied space of safety within my body. It's mostly only when um, other things around started to kind of nicely coming together. Um, because most of my life I couldn't, I couldn't grasp that sense of safety and I, that sense of foundation kind of, um, so this, uh, this, this yielding that I can both 
kind of give into the gravity and also hold both give into the gravity and hold my body together up towards you know the sky in a in a metaphorical sense but um this sensation of those two forces coming together they really helped to create that safety container i don't know if that makes sense and i just i wonder just to kind of again go, go back to you um so how was that process of healing so you said you had a quite a difficult upbringing yourself and um, i imagine you know there were some traumas there and how did you how did you manage to go through that process both your emotional well-being and your physical well-being of course as we're now talking about the holistic health yeah i think that um having an output was very very important so um from quite an early age i was writing or um kind of composing music or making up dances and i definitely think having a safe space to to channel that um was good i think i'd be lying if i said that you know i'm fully at the point where i'm completely healed from that and that it's in the past i think that it's only now at this point in my life in the last few months where i've really thought okay i want to maybe dig deeper and and face some of those painful truths um i think another thing is i'm slowly realizing as time goes by i've always seen myself very separate from the rest of the world um but actually realizing that i am of the world and i know it's really cliche and people say it all the time but we are part of nature and i suppose that i before used to have this thought that you know i really wanted to protect the world and preserve it and and keep nature in good order but i'd be quite harsh to myself and you know judgmental and and quite critical and i suppose giving myself the same kind of care and nurture that i would any other creature of nature um has also been important i know that women tend to be hypercritical of themselves so i'm not sure if that's something that you can relate to in your own life Yeah, well most of the time I think I thought about uh, uh something like that before uh this uh, conversation. Um but I realized that majority of my life I was thinking that um something is wrong with me. So I have to no matter what happens or n- no matter who what people decide you know when it uh, comes to you know relationship to to me and other people um that most of the time i thought that uh, the problem is with me so i i put all the all the kind of responsibility on on myself and and i know big times that this is this is trauma and because the whole um the whole concentration goes to you and it's a lot about the ego but also a bit uh yeah so it's it's all it's all really getting stuck to to your pain and um not seeing that other people can also hold responsibilities and that you can create certain boundaries which can he- be healthy um you know of course there's difference between uh kind of you know being uh, avoidant and building walls around people and and the healthy boundaries 
so yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, I exp as you said, that women have a tendency for, for this. I think definitely yes. And, um, and for some time I even kind of been feeling a shame because I think this way, I don't know. <laughs> what, what about you? What about you? I'm just really struck by what you were saying about always locating the blame in yourself and assuming that you're the problem and, and you're so right, we can't take all of the responsibility. Um, I think as women, we're really taught not to take up a lot of space and to shrink back and to fold to allow other people to grow. And so we do just always conform to, you know, what it is that society or the other person expects of us. So it's really important to actually draw the line and say, hang on, maybe I'm not the one at fault here. Um, yeah, I, I completely exactly. relate. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, um, so used to not taking space and I, I'm just at this one of my life and I feel such an expansion <laughs> and it really feels it feels such a difference for appreciating and embodying this expansion of that I can I can do this I can do this and I can do this because I feel like doing it and it's such a big difference of before of I actually would love to do all those things but somehow I feel some weird reason not worthy or um, this is not for me, this is too difficult because of my upbringing traumas, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense to you too. Yes, yeah. I'm thinking about imposter syndrome as well when you're talking about that feeling of I'm not worthy and that there's that voice in your head that somehow assumes everyone else is capable and you're yes. just faking it and worried that people might see you know, oh gosh, no, she's just making it up as she goes along. So I can also completely relate to imposter syndrome. And sometimes I feel like we just need the confidence of, you know, the privilege, you know, privileged white men don't think twice about taking up space a lot of the time, not not all men. Um, and yeah. so it's it doesn't come naturally to us to do the same, but maybe there's something that we can take a leaf from their book and step into the light anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's just, it's complex thing of, um, you know, because I, I, in this, I don't want to say that, you know, men don't feel um, these things too, but it's just such a complex, I think, kind of cultural thing that um, for quite a while, you know, men have had more rights and women didn't. And uh, it, again, it just takes time because it feels like such a huge collective trauma of all of us, <laughs> both men and women. And we just, you know, really trying to understand how to continue living in this because it just seems that the old ways are don't respond anymore in our systems. Yeah. Definitely. And, and I think that as much as we try to erase the patriarchy, you know, it's intergenerational and it's it, these institutions are hundreds of years old and, and thousands of years old and to break those down it takes a lot of courage and a lot of reflection um it, it's just such a sprawling topic I feel like we could probably have a whole separate podcast on, yeah. <laughs> on gender as well absolutely yeah yeah definitely and uh you've been also um 
as you said, of course, you've been working with, with kids, but you said you've also been working with women. So how was that experience as well? Just <laughs> briefly. <laughs> I can hear, I can feel myself sighing because I'm just thinking about all of the women that I supported and how amazing they were and how much potential they had. But I worked with many women who were victims of domestic abuse and... Um, yeah, I'm. I'm was really struck by their collective lack of self-esteem. Um, it it was difficult, I think, because you're supporting women who are oppressed whilst also being a woman who is oppressed. If that makes sense, so um, yeah. I think it was it was difficult. But we're now moving. Social services are finally starting to be intersectional and to recognise that women um can be oppressed but all the other intersecting forms of oppression as well you know especially women who are black or minoritized or who have disabilities or who are lgbt plus so um we're moving in the right direction but there's so much work to do i think still mm, yeah absolutely and um just again body related question but did you notice any specific um, I don't know, responses of those women that been abused. So how their their bodies respond to the world because of that experience? It's a, such a good question. I think the the first thing would be something as simple as body posture. Lots of women, you know, if you think about a wilted flower would be shrunk down, shrinking into themselves, maybe not able to maintain eye contact. Um, that I suppose they were the main, the main things that I noticed or almost like the way that they moved often felt very panicked and rushed, even if in that moment, you know, you weren't in a rush. Um, the tone of voice as well could often feel quite strained and then if we're thinking more holistically a lot of women just didn't know how to or weren't given the tools to take care of eating well or take care of you know making sure that their skin um was attended to properly or making sure that um they had all the the nutrients they needed as well so i know that's that's a lot of information <laughs> yeah but uh, it's um i think it's it's good it's good to, to share for now. So I am very aware that we have to slowly move towards the end, <laughs> which is, I mean, incredible. I feel just started. Uh, but one of the one of the last questions. So as um, I already mentioned a little bit in less stress, we really also study uh, creativity. And one of the aspects of it we we do how it relates to trauma and stress um, and difficult experiences and how the trauma can actually affect the quality of creativity in a way how it comes out as for example a piece of work to the to the world and how it actually can translate sometimes as re-traumatizing both you know both the 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 artists and the society so kind of continue the, the path and perhaps how the healing and integration of the traumas and resi building resilience to stress can really help that 
you know, to, to center, uh, to bring back the essence of the creativity in the human being. So not talking, of course, on the professional level, but to any, each of us, uh, in any ways, uh, creativity can be expressed. So as, as already I said before, you, you studied, you studied music, you did a lot of dance. Um, so did you, how was that for you? The, the, those two things together, traumas, creativity and healing and the quality of it. Um, so I think the first thing that comes to mind is that sometimes I think that trauma or some of the darkest parts of ourselves can make the most meaningful or beautiful art. If you think about a lot of the artists um, of history and of the world, many of them had been through significant traumas. And I think that if you see the world in a different light or certain realities are distorted it makes your artwork or um, more raw and authentic so I think that in some ways the trauma gave more life to you know creating music and so on but I think where it limited me personally is that I think if you're carrying so much trauma in the body you don't always have the attention span or the ability to focus for long concentrated periods of time um or to carve out space so I think that was a limitation for me sometimes is that I felt that I could have expanded or done more but sometimes I felt physically unable to um so I hope that makes sense but I, yeah I suppose my main uh the main message that I would want to get across would be that people who have experienced trauma can ultimately, I think, from what I've seen, be the best or, or the most profound artists. And I'm sure that you've seen that in you know your own work and, and in others too. Yeah, and as you as you said, um, especially this thing that um, you know you can really create amazing art, I think, but this this thing of not being able to properly focus for a long time on even to make a decision of certain idea, you know, and it's such a, such a biological thing, um, because for me, it, it really became clear of this particular thing, as you said, uh, then I discovered the polyvagal theory and, um, the neuroscience who, who came across with it. Um, so it's, it's quite a big one and a complex one, but he said that if we have a lot of unintegrated traumas that we're still acting from, so it's really, really difficult. We don't have the space um, or even the brain. So this this part of the prefrontal cortex, it just doesn't work that way. So we can focus enough and uh, have attention and uh, make decisions. You know, this is actually a very biological thing. So I was like, this is uh, this is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, same. I think it's sometimes you come across things and it joins the dots for you. So I, I read last night about how trauma can make you clumsy. And I think my whole life I've just thought, oh, I'm constantly walking into things or why am I always dropping things or, you know, but to actually realize there's a biological reason for it, I think it made me feel a lot more assured and locating the blame outside yeah, yeah. of myself instead of in me. So I just wanted to, um, if you could uh, 
finish with whatever it feels like, um, how, what, whatever you want to, to tell related to body and healing and creativity and maybe to share anything within that. I think I would go back to what you were talking about, about the biological realities of trauma. I would just really encourage anyone who feels like they're carrying trauma, um, if you haven't already educated yourself on how trauma can manifest in the body, I would really encourage you to just take the time to learn about that um, and it could be so insightful. So I think that that's, that's one message because at school we're taught about, you know, all the quote unquote important stuff about maths and science and and physics, but we're never taught about the realities of our own body. So I just really encourage you to go on that journey if you haven't already. And I suppose the other message would be that you deserve to be creative and we live in a society that has stripped that from us. So um, if you can find the time, um, give yourself the gift of time to move and be creative, even if it's, as you said before, for just 10 minutes a day, um, then do that. And so that would be my lasting message, I think. And just the last note uh, to ask, can answer very shortly, how do you manage stress? I'm going to need to think about that one. How do I manage stress? I think it's through being intentional about my time. So I look at my diary for the week ahead and rather than getting really overwhelmed, I will block out time to do tasks, but I will also block out time, safe spaces. So I think it's, I manage stress by trying to control my time and not letting time control me like it used to in the past. Mm, that's amazing and also in less in a small in small steps <laughs> wow thank you so much it's uh it's been a rich conversation and i would love to go like continue talking absolutely uh but i think we managed to touch on so many important topics and hopefully this is not the last time we're speaking uh, thank you so much and uh, hope to see you and speak soon. Thank you for having me. It's been such an honour and wish you all the best with less stress. It sounds like you're doing some amazing work. Mm-hmm.